Hello everyone and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? I'm here again with my good friend Baz. Hello Baz. Hello guys, we're back again. <laughs> Don't start the song again. I know, we got, I we know. We've got whatters about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what we have got coming up for your delectation, dear listeners, is a special guest. Jeremy Crawford, who is the managing editor and designer at Wizard of the Coast for D&D, which is very exciting, isn't it, Baz? That is properly exciting, actually. Yeah, it, that's a little notch, then, isn't it, on our experience point tracker that we have for guests. <laughs> Jeremy's like, I, I think we talk about whether he's head honcho, assistant head honcho, or the director of honchos, but he's a honcho of some sort. Yes, and I ask him at least twice if he fights people in the office, which I don't know was perhaps the right question to ask, but he agreed with at least one of them. <laughs> so, so that was the main thing. No, he's a very, a very nice man. He's um, he's done some stuff for uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay back in the day, second edition, and, and Blue Rose and other things. But we didn't get into that because uh, coming up next month is the Eberron setting, which is coming out for D and D fifth edition. It's been out a couple of times before for previous episodes, but uh, we chatted to him about that primarily at first, and uh, his enthusiasm was clear to see, wasn't it, Baz? He was yeah. super excited to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I know that, like you know, for example. And I think he alludes to this in our conversation as well. Of all the settings that Wizards of the Coast are putting out for D&D over the last few years, there's kind of like everybody wants their favourite one to be next and not everybody can have that. And and Eberron is, you know, it's a firm fan favourite, but it won't be everyone's favourite. But I tell you what, I defy you to not listen to the next hour and want to climb inside a giant Warforged Colossi, because I do. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you've got someone telling you it's like Blade Runner and things like that, little soundbites, you think, "Ooh, yeah." He does a really, he does a really, really good job of being a, a super fan of his own of his own stuff, and I mean that as a compliment, genuinely. Because why wouldn't you be? Absolutely. So, without further ado, um, here's our little chat that we had with the very amiable, and knowledgeable, and ebullient Jeremy Crawford. Whoa, Jeremy Crawford. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! So here he is, the man himself, Jeremy Crawford. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm doing fabulously, thank you. Excellent to have you on the show. So... You're arguably one of the head honchos, or the head honcho at D&D. I don't know how, if you have an egalitarian system over there, you, can't, you have a pyramid where you fight weekly to work out who's on top this week. But you're, you're kind of the managing editor. You have a hand in all the books, I think you believe. So you get probably some glory for everything and also some blame equally portioned across it. But could you talk us through what you do at, at Wizards? What's like a typical day in your job? So uh, thankfully, several of us have different domains that we, that we watch over. And my domain is specifically the game's rules. Uh, the game's uh, lead rules designer. And what that largely means is I'm the guy who has his eye on all of the game's rules going all the way back to the D&D next playtest, uh, you know, six, seven, five to seven years ago. Goodness gracious, the time has flown. Uh, uh, all the way to today. 
addition to overseeing the work other people do, do uh, design myself and also do uh, managing editing duties as well, which is really sort of broad oversight on how uh, a number of our books come together. Uh, I do all of that working uh, with our team, and on any given day, I'm working with our designers on staff. I'm working uh, with Chris Perkins, who's our principal story designer. So in a way, he and I uh, sort of share responsibility uh, for what goes inside uh, role-playing game books, with him being uh, the overseer on the story side, and I'm with me on the rules side. Uh, we work uh, on, on any given day with our art directors, with our graphic designers, because in addition to working on, you know, particular class feature does or what a new monster does, I also am sometimes working on what font are we using in a particular book mm -hmm. or what color would make a book particularly inviting when you open it up. Uh, one of the fun things about being the, the relatively small creative team that we are is it means we get to build what you see at the end. We get to build it by hand. And so rather than you know, sort of me being an ivory tower, typing up rules and sending them off and someone else building the books, uh, we actually get our hands dirty in the book creation process, uh, which is wonderfully satisfying. Uh, I love making things, and I pretty much love every aspect of making a D&D book, whether it's working on the story, the rules, uh, talking about the art, uh, finalizing the layout. So to go back to your question, what does a typical day look like me, really a typical day for me can involve working on any aspect of a D&D book, but the thing I always come back to is the shepherding of the game's rules, and that's not only the rules that are coming up in books that aren't out yet, but that's also keeping an eye on the core rules that we released back in 2014, making sure they're still working the way we intend, uh, releasing when necessary answers to people's questions in our Sage Advice Compendium, uh, occasionally answering questions on Twitter as well, and then, if necessary, also overseeing correction to our books if we realize there's a squeak in the machine and we need to repair it. Okay, that's that's really interesting, Jamie. I mean, you, you, you must have said the word books more than once then. I always got the impression that, like, in the 21st century, books were like an old-fashioned thing and nobody was going to be bothered about paper and headings and glue and hardbacks anymore, but do you, do you think D&D and Wizards of the Coast is still a book-making operation? So Wizards is far more than a book-making operation, uh, but books are definitely a core part of what we do. I mean, since we also make uh, card games, not only over you know, the Magic the Gathering department, but we have our own Dungeon Mayhem uh, card game and Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, we occasionally work on board games, we have licensing partners doing miniatures. Uh, so D&D has many different expressions, but when it comes to the rules and uh, stories for the tabletop role-playing game, uh, the books are our foundation, but even there, you can see a digital expression in something like D&D Beyond. And I, I, I could imagine a future, you know, we, if, if devices become high enough res in the future and low cost enough for people all around the world to have them. I think even in a future like that, there would still probably be a place 
also love digital publishing, but there is something especially satisfying about making a physical object. Uh, and, and, and honestly, I am uh, enough of a lover of history that I also love the sort of continuity of bookmaking going back hundreds of years. Uh, it is, it's one of the product types that we make in the 21st century that, sure, the machines have changed that produce books, but the product itself, it's really, to, to use a very modern expression, the, the user experience or the user interface really hasn't changed in hundreds of years because it's genius. Almost mm-hmm. anyone can pick up a book and figure out how to use it. Yeah. Uh, whereas most modern technology does not actually have a UI that straightforward. It's a little bit like people buying vinyl records now, right? You, can, you might have Spotify or Amazon Prime or whatever, but you like buying a record, <laughs> you know, a physical artifact and seeing the album cover next to the machine and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's cool. So one of the things I've noticed as well that you seem to be doing is um, having alternate covers for things and that, that kind of, that's really sort of, hit, I don't know whether it's a zeitgeist or what, but it seems to be really appealing to people, even though the contents are going to be the same. Just the fact there's alternatives and different versions and things, that seems to really... There's something about the presentation that appeals to people. Yeah, when we did it the first time, it was an experiment. And often when we experiment with something, we honestly don't know how it's going to turn out. And so it was great to discover that uh, there was a hunger for these uh, alternative covers. And so, yeah, they've been starting to pop up more and more. I like it simply because I love fantasy art, and if having two covers means, you know, essentially we get to start doubling the amount of great art we get to look at, then I'm happy. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, uh, one of the things that people are most excited about at the minute is um, Eberron's coming back out as a setting next month at the time of recording. Obviously, I know a little bit about it, but there might be some people out there who this is all new to. So, could you give us, like, your elevator pitch on what's cool about this setting for new people? So Eberron is a fantasy world that has just emerged from a catastrophic continent-spanning war. And this is a war in which not only magic and mundane martial prowess were martial, but also magic-fueled technology was used. A technology and magic that grew grew to such an extent of power that the catastrophe was triggered called the Day of Mourning that wiped out an entire kingdom. And so when the, when a, an Eberron campaign starts, you essentially are emerging from this world war not knowing what caused that neighboring nation to be wiped off the map and now trying to put back the pieces. And in this mix, you also have a new people, the war who were created to be uh, these almost sort of android-like weapons of war who have discovered their own selfhood, and their purpose is now gone. They were created to fight, and now suddenly they've awoken to being full people. They're not just weapons, and they are in a world that is largely at peace, although there are rumblings of potential further war. And so I think many Eberron campaigns... Uh, end up being about making sure there is not another catastrophic war. And that great war uh, is optimistically called the last war. 
And, and I think the people of Eberron really hope that name sticks and, and that there isn't, and that it doesn't just end up meaning the previous one <laughs> and truly mean the final. I, I, I've actually always loved the double entendre of the last war uh, yeah. because, because it can be interpreted either very optimistically or very pessimistically. That's, thanks, man. That was, that's kind of like Ebron all over, isn't it? There's there's at least what thirteen different ways of looking at anything, and 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 dozens of different ways of playing it. I mean, I I know of at least I don't know, six, seven different big campaign frameworks that Ebron will support. You could be like a merchant with, with your dragon marked houses. You could be interested in draconic prophecy. You could be trying to figure out what happened with the Mornland. You could be being a pulp detective in a big kind of fantasy city. So. I mean, everyone supports everything. What's your what's your personal favourite type of campaign? Is it the one based around the last war? I mean, because you could ignore that, couldn't you? Largely, you could just forget about that and concentrate on things that you know appeal to you more. You could certainly ignore the last war, although in in almost any adventure framework in Eberron, you're eventually going to run into something that was affected by the last war, and that that is something explore in the new book, Eberron Rising from the Last War, where we made sure throughout the book that when we talk about any part of Corbeir, the main continent of Eberron, we always make sure to, to say how it was affected by the last war, because it might have been affected in ways that you don't expect. Because it's very easy to focus on the Mornland, because it's this massive scar upon the continent. The the war left scars everywhere. Now, as as far as my favorite framework, in Eberron, uh, I love the exploration angle. I love imagining getting either on uh, a lightning train or in a Lyrantar airship and, and picturing in my mind the map and imagining that vehicle traveling across in a red line, sort of like Indiana Jones, going around to discover the amazing different cultures in Eberron, ancient secrets that were buried in the rubble of the war, uh, people that you can discover who need to be rescued, little bits of the draconic prophecy. I mean, because the exploration angle, in a way, lets you touch upon all of the other frameworks. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're traveling somewhere on, on the lightning rail, uh, you might suddenly find yourself in a sort of noir detective story on the train, sort of like a you know murder on the Orient Express. Uh, you, while traveling out maybe towards Zendrick, that sort of dark continent to the south, uh, on your airship or or aboard your sea ship, uh, you could suddenly come face to face with some something that is from the ancient days of the giants when they ruled. Mm. Uh,
peoples who in D&D are traditionally thought of as monsters. And that that gets at another neat thing that you touched on earlier about Eberron, the sort of like there are 13 ways of viewing anything. Eberron mm. uh, has a really fun, very modern moral ambiguity uh, where, you know, if you're used to adventuring in the Forgotten Realms or in Dragonlance or another uh, established D&D world, you might be used to meeting a particular monster and just being prepared for them to be vicious. Uh, whereas in Eberron, you know, they might be very genteel and invite you to sit down for tea, uh, and then you might you might discover that it is actually the traditional sort of very civilized folk who are the monsters uh, because mm. of their their corporate machinations. Uh, you know, they, like the Dragon Mark houses, for instance. When I say corporate, I'm actually thinking of the Dragon Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where because of how hobbled many of the, uh, the nations are. The Dragonmark houses have really arisen as uh, the most powerful forces on Corvair, and they are essentially immoral uh, corporations. Because even even uh, House Jurasco, which is focused on healing, is still out to make gold off uh, off of healing people. Uh, so, so <laughs> that's, it, big, that's it, big pharma for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it it, it is a, it, everyone is in cruel desperately in need of heroes uh, because all around uh, there are the seeds that could easily be cultivated into a new war. So one of, one of the pillars of D&D uh, initially is exploration, which that certainly sounds a bit like, but it's, it's almost tending towards investigation maybe. I, I know from a previous edition of Eberron, the kind of like inspirations in terms of film things were like Sleepy Hollow and Brotherhood of the Wolf, but then also the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca and things like that. So, do you still think those film touch points are relevant? And does it lean more towards that kind of, um, I guess, the kind of investigative rather than exploring in terms of hacking through jungles? It's more about what's going on in the world and who's up to what and that kind of thing. So, all of those uh, cinematic touchstones are still relevant uh, in Eberron in, in this latest version of it. Uh, and that was something we were very careful about as we did our work. Uh, the, the book, uh, we, had a, we had a number of people working as designers on it, but the three lead designers were uh, myself, James Wyatt, and Keith Baker. And James and Keith, of course, were two of the original designers on Eberron back in third edition. Uh, and so the three of us working together wanted to make sure that we were faithfully communicating uh, what people loved about Eberron when it first appeared back in the third edition period, while also introducing some new spice. Uh, and so as a part of that uh, protection of what people loved, there are still the great noir elements, you can still play detectives, uh, you can play gritty war stories if you want, you can go on pulp adventures in the jungle, uh, you can get into um, high society politics, especially in the city of Sharn or within the Dragonmark houses, all of those touchstones are in place. I would say the main twist that we've added in is constantly going back to the fact that this continent just emerged from a war that was on the scale of World War One or World War Two in our world. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when when we got together and, t- and and sort of critiqued what we had done in the previous two versions of the world, one of the things that came up a lot 
this major war just ended. But then you'd read something about some part of Corbert, and there was no evidence that the war had actually occurred. Uh, and, right. yeah. and, you know, often one of the examples I would bring up is like, like to this day, you can go to places in Germany and still see bullet holes in walls. Yeah. And, and, and World War II ended decades ago, and the mm-hmm. last war was just a handful of years ago in Ekron. Uh, so you should be able to go to places and still see, like, wrecked airships, you know, buildings that still have not been completely reconstructed. Uh, people who might have be having to work through lingering fear about their neighbors right across the border because just a few years ago they might have been at war with them. Yeah, I mean... That, that's a really fair critique. I guess that's why I asked the question earlier about, like, can you ignore the war? Because cause I was doing that for the last couple of editions. It wasn't the <laughs> campaign framework that we were in. But, but you're absolutely right, because, I mean, every player character will have actually been alive when that war was kicking off. It's not like something their grandfathers did. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were alive, and it was round the corner. So it's, it, would be, it would be foolish to try and ignore that, wouldn't it? And I think it's kind of nice to bring a big central focus, because because you can do so much with Ebron, sometimes you don't know where to start. And, and it sounds like you've provided a, um, a central starting point for people's campaigns with this new book. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, because in addition to having the focus thematically on emerging from this war, we also go into a lot of detail about using Sharn as your starting point. Okay, uh, yeah. we, we picked Sharn uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, A, it's it's always been uh, heavily associated with the setting. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. also wonderful because it captures so well what is special about the setting. Uh, none, none of our other worlds has this kind of New York City-esque uh, setting, you know, complete with skyscrapers and airships zooming around and, you know, corporate intrigue. Uh, and also, Charm is perfect because... Uh, like uh, New York City or London in our world, it's a meeting place of people from everywhere. Uh, you can go to Shard and meet somebody from anywhere else in Corbin. And so it's a perfect place to launch adventure. Uh, you might end up spending most of your campaign outside Shard, but you can think of Shard as being this place you return to. Uh, or that, you know, it, it might just be your, your starting place, or you could have an mm. entire campaign that never leaves Sharp uh, because the city is so massive. Uh, we also really wanted to explore more in this version of the world this idea that magic and magic-fueled technology is widespread. And so in some of the art you'll see of Sharn, uh, we have not only uh, light globes floating plentifully around, but in a, in a couple of the paintings in the book, you'll even see um, signs that almost look like holograms uh, that are essentially uh, permanent illusions. Uh, because, because of all of our worlds, uh, this would be the world where you would see that. And uh, one of my favorite paintings in the book is, is the full-page painting that opens up uh, the Sharn chapter, and it shows Sharn at night with... Uh, airships zooming among uh, the skyscrapers, and there is a big billboard of an illusory dragon roaring. Uh, <laughs> almost almost like something out of Blade Runner. Uh, and, 
just on, on the magic thing, so if memory serves me right, although magic's pervasive, it's not all high magic. It's more a low level of magic, but there's a lot more of it in the sort of like, rather than electricity, you have lightning and that kind of thing. So you're describing quite a magical world there, but it's not that everybody's casting fireballs all the time. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, because uh, a lot of what I just described is actually possible with relatively low-level illusion magic in this mm. and and cantrips even, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, honestly, you can do some of this with uh, you know our, the illusion cantrip <laughs> that's mm. in the game. Um, and so we just thought, well, certainly, uh, mage rites and others would come up with ways to have these illusions sort of on loops uh, in various parts of Sharn and other places in the world. Uh, but, yeah, we, we definitely are faithful to the long-standing Eberron story uh, that uh, availability of magic is broad, but it is not deep. Again, meaning, mm. you know, not everyone is casting disintegrate, uh, but but those low-level spells are are easy to get a hold of. And we also make it clear that common and uncommon magic items, uh, but common items especially, are far easier to get in this setting mm. than in any other of our settings. Uh, and so with that in mind, we included uh, some new rules uh, clarifying how you can uh, fairly easily get common items in different areas of, of this world. What was the um, what was the rules challenge like? Because updating a setting is quite a big task, and I think Eberron, I may be wrong in saying this, Eberron brings with it quite a lot of new mechanical heft because it always did. It had the extra races, it has the artificer class, all of that magic. You, it, it can't just be words and paintings, can it? Because that's where you come in, and you've got to put some numbers in there, and they've got to be broadly right and stack up against each other. Was this a big challenge from a rules point of view? It, it was. I, uh, I would say outside of uh, the monster books we've released since the core books, like Warden Kingdom's mm. Tomb of Bows and Bobo's Guide to Monsters, uh, and also outside Xanathar's Guide to Everything, this book has more new rules in it uh, than any of our other books since the core, yeah. since the core books. Uh, because not only are there those new races, there are also rules for every single one of the dragon marks, there are rules for aberrant dragon marks. Uh, there are uh, rules for the artificer. So this book contains in it the first official new class, uh, fourth edition. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and and the artificer uh, takes up a hefty amount of the book. Uh, mm. I, I was comparing it to some of our class write-ups in the player's handbook, and it is quite a bit longer. Uh, it's it's okay. at least twice as long as class write-up in the player's handbook. Uh, yeah, this book includes new magic items. It has an entire chapter of new monsters. Uh, there is, you know, there are also rules sprinkled throughout, even in the sections where we're just describing an area. Like when you get to the section describing the Mordland, well, there are the rules on uh, how magic is messed with in, in the Mordland. Uh, and so the, the rules lift on this book I was just saying, uh, I was just going to ask uh, how the playtest for Artificer and all of the other things that you run out in the in the usual way, how much of an impact that had on what you had to do? Uh, the playtest feedback had a huge impact on the 
final form, not only of the artificer, but also of uh, the new races and also the dragon monks. So when people see the book next month, uh, they're going to see that every one of those bits that appeared in Unearthed Arcana has changed in some way. In a few cases, like with some of the dragon marks, the changes were pretty minor. In other cases, the changes the changes will be drastic. Uh, the uh, the artificer, uh, similarly, that went through many changes in some of the subclasses, like in the battlesmith, for instance. The changes are are pretty slight, uh, but then you get to a subclass uh, like uh, the alchemist, and the changes are deep. Uh, because the last time people saw the alchemist, it had uh, a homunculus built into the subclass, and that homunculus is no longer there. Uh, now, they, the playtesters told us we want the alchemist to be focused more on potion making, uh, so that's what the alchemist is focused on in the version. Honestly, that was not a hard change for us to make, because our original internal design for the alchemist was focused on potion use, so we essentially reverted to an earlier version of our design. Uh, and then I ended up taking the homunculus and making it an option for all artificers rather than associating it with a particular subclass. Uh, so now no one needs, if they love the homunculus, no one needs to shed any tears for it because they can still, they can still get it. I was a little bit worried that someone had to take it out back and cheat it then, so I'm glad that was not, <laughs> we've not done that. It's gone to the homunculus farm. <laughs> <laughs> Another example of how impactful the playtest feedback was, was how much the Warforged changed. We got a lot of feedback about the Warforged uh, armor feature that it had the last time people saw it. Uh, it was far too powerful. Uh, the different Warforged subraces were also not stacking up against each other particularly well. Uh, they were fine from a story standpoint, but when it came to their game mechanical heft, uh, they just were not comparable to each other. Um, and so when people see the final version of the Warforged, they're going to see that actually the subraces have, have gone away. Uh, the Warforged uh, has no subraces, but instead you have some customization options built into uh, the race. Uh, and so some of the flavor that those sub-races were delivering is still possible to achieve uh, depending on how you customize the Warforge. Uh, we've also made it so the Warforge no longer has that um, sort of idiosyncratic armor feature. Warforge now just simply get a plus one to their armor class. Full stop. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So when you're having design meetings with a team, I'm, I'm interested, I don't know how far you go back on the timeline or anything, but it seems like when you've decided you're going to do this, revisit Eberron and, and bring it all up, does everybody get like the little notebooks out about their, what they want to see or what they don't care about anymore and then you get in a big room and have a fight about it or, you know, are there, are there stand-up rows about whether Warforged have this or whether Homunculus should stay or whatever else or I've got this great new idea and people shouting out whether it would fit in the setting or not. I mean, is there is it that kind of dynamic goes on or is it all pretty just led from one or two minds perhaps and people just shepherd along ideas? The dynamic, the design dynamic, is very different for each project. So when we were designing the Player's Handbook, the Dungeons and Masters Guide, and the Monster Manual, that was a multi-year process uh, where there were times where we had exactly what you 
when it came down to working on um, Eberron, really this project started uh, a couple of years ago uh, over brunch at Gen Con. Uh, Keith Baker and I had brunch, and we started talking about what we would want to do with the setting to make it feel like a natural fit for the edition. Uh, that conversation then led rise after you know many subsequent steps to uh, Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron, which came out last year, which then rolled into uh, our work on uh, Eberron Rising from the Last War. And as we worked on the book, every member of the team uh, certainly uh, had feedback and was free to give it because we had we have a pretty non-hierarchical uh, way of working here. Uh, my philosophy is, uh, you know, a good idea is a good idea. I don't actually care what a person's title is. If the, if the idea is great, you know, it, 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 I'll try to make a place for it in the book. Uh, but, but ultimately, when it came to what do we want to see in Eberron, does it feel right in the setting? It was a series of conversations uh, uh, involving uh, me, James, and Keith. And, you know, it would ultimately come to me uh, to sort of decide the final form. Uh, but I always listened very intently to any of the feedback Keith and James gave, uh, because I like to honor uh, the work that they did uh, creating the setting initially. Uh, but it's it was fun, uh, given their enthusiasm, uh, to inject new elements. Uh, so, you know, rather than protecting their old creation and not wanting anything to change, uh, they were very enthusiastic about some of the new elements uh, that we introduced in this book. It must have been like, um, I'm sure you're, you're the same, we've had old campaigns that you run and you kind of stumble across them when you move house or something like that, you dust it off and read all your old notes and go, oh, this is brilliant. But then you instantly think of a whole bunch of new ideas you want to add top of that if you run it again, that kind of thing. So even seeing your own work comes back as an inspiration to yourself if you give it enough time, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and also, you know, going along with that analogy of looking, you know, finding an old notebook of sorts, most of us also, when we find something old that we created, we usually want to change something. Uh, you know, there's often this feeling of like, what was I thinking? <laughs> and, and so, you know, Keith and James and I, we all had things we wanted uh, to experiment with that we knew uh, in the setting. Uh, one of my favorites uh, is something I was very keen to do early on in the project, and that is introduce, in addition to the Warforge we already have, as well as the Warforge Titans that we had in previous editions, I really wanted us to add skyscraper-sized Warforged uh, and so in this book, we introduce a third kind of Warforged that are called uh, Warforged Colossi. And we reveal that uh, they were completed right before the Day of Mourning and probably would have led to a decisive conclusion to the war had the Day of Mourning not occurred. And uh, we have uh, in the book this haunting painting of Metro, uh, you know, the, the towering city that is now lost in the Mornland. And we've depicted this city before in previous editions, but what's new this time in the painting is you see the spires uh, of that city and leaning up against 
against one of them dead is one of these titanic warforged colossi uh, that was that was deactivated uh, on the day of mourning. And we we introduce in the book uh, these colossi actually as adventure locations. So we have a we have a map in in the book uh, that DMs can use if they want uh, their their party to go climbing around inside. Uh, one of these fallen colossi. And why wouldn't you, frankly? <laughs> well, it will never work. I mean, giant punching robots, no one's going to like that in game. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, everybody's very stoked about that, I'm quite sure. Um, there's some there's sort of like a, an array of settings coming out for D&D. It, it almost seems like it's impossible to be able to play them all, in a way. So, I'm just wondering how you see uh, campaigns panning out. I mean, I'm sure you don't personally care how people play their D&D, that's up to them, but do you see um, all these settings as something like Saltmarsh and this and, and there's presumably Avernus and other things that are coming in the future as well? Do, do you see people playing games for as long as the product's kind of new and shiny and then when the new one comes it, there's kind of like a new take-up of that or do you think people still play whatever is they're playing and just carry on their own path? I mean, I'm sure it's a mix, but do you get any sense of kind of when a new book comes out, if that immediately leads to a, a falling off of other settings and perhaps an uptake of the new one? So we find that many people will buy the new book when it comes out, but wait to use it. Uh, because mm-hmm. people, I mean, there are certainly groups that will wrap up their current campaign as soon as the new book comes out. But many people will just add the book to their shelf and you know bring it to the table to play once they have finished their current campaign, which might not be for another year or so. Uh, and given uh, the number of times we've needed to reprint the older 5th edition adventures, uh, there continues to be interest in those. Uh, so uh, I know there are still people out there playing Tyranny of Dragons and Princes of the Apocalypse and uh, Curse of Strahd, you know, a number of our earlier adventures. People are still playing Lost Mine of Fandelver in the starter set. And then other people are, you know, diving into uh, Baldur's Gate and Descent into Avernus. Yeah. I stockpile games. Who doesn't? That's all part of the hobby, isn't it? Just in case. <laughs> I think I've got the second edition Dark Sun box set, which has still got its cling wrap on it. It will get played. It's not going to go now. When you're the retirement home, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're all stocking up for retirement. That's how it works. <laughs> too, too real for me because right, right now I have massive piles of games in our garage, and I'm trying yeah. to decide what to do with them because it, it has reached a, a sort of a point of absurdity where I have more games than I will be able to play in several lifetimes. So that's when you know you're winning, Jeremy. There is no question about this at all. Like when you die, whoever's got the most toys is the winner. That's, that's the <laughs> So uh, one of your other guys is you do sage advice and answer rules questions and things like that. I wondered if you had any um, any interesting ones that you had recently. Like I, I saw one very recently, which was uh, someone. That, I mean, to me, they they raise more questions than they answer. So somebody said, "Can I cast fireball when I'm blind?" And, and the answer was just a short yes because you can. But I was immediately like, "What are you doing? You're blind. Don't start casting fireball." I went, <laughs> and was somebody aiming this wizard and then shouting fire and the wizard is casting fireball and hope. You know, so that you get some really, I, I don't know, for my mind, it fires my imagination about what's going on in the game session that they have to stop and ask this question. And someone goes, Wait, I don't know the answer to this. I need to get an answer. You know, are, are there any really ones that stand out to you? Whenever people 
people, because I do get asked this occasionally, like what, what have been some of your favorite questions, which are the questions that are the most interesting. I honestly love all of them because they all make me pause and ask the exact question that you just asked. What is going on their game in their game that led to this question? And then, for me, there's also a research component, uh, because I love seeing how people use our rules out in the wild. It's also a way for me to get a window into other people's games, and sometimes discover a way to read our rules that would never have occurred to me. Uh, I am often delighted to read the questions, because sometimes also people will ask them, like, oh, do these like questions crush your soul? And I'm like, no, I actually find them immensely fascinating. Because, and, and also sort of a gift, because I'm getting a window into someone else's mind or into a DMV group's mind and getting to see, you know, wow, I never would have thought to read this spell or this class feature or this monster trait in this particular way. And now that I see that maybe multiple groups are reading it that way, I can account for that perspective in our future design. And this is really part of what keeps me endlessly interested in what we do, because there's always some way we can write our rules better. And so one of the main reasons on, on Twitter and read people's questions is so that we can learn how to serve them even better in our future books. Uh, and really see what is making their groups tick, what, what are they really loving, what is setting them off? What's causing them to fight each other? That that is the thing. That is the thing that always is a little heartbreaking to me because uh, I always want D&D really to just be a source of happiness for a group. So anytime I see that people are clearly uh, being acrimonious uh, with each other over rules, it's always a little heartbreaking for me because I'm like, you know, come on, we're all here to just have a good time and just make a you know make a, a decision that's good for the day and. Uh, mm. the, the questions are also sometimes a sobering reminder that despite how hard we worked to make the edition elegant and accessible, there's even more we could do to make the indie elegant and accessible. Mm. Uh, because uh, even though we had 175,000 plus people playtesting the indie next, it's still nothing like the number of people who now play the game, and and those people are constantly bringing perspectives to me where I'm like, oh, you know, as soon as I have a chance, I'm going to apply this and that and this other thing uh, to make this different part of, of the game you know, run with fewer squeaks, bring up fewer arguments. Uh, but I also know, and this is one of the things uh, I've learned working on tabletop role-playing games now for as long as I have, uh, because I think if you combine my freelance work with my time at Wizards, it's going on like 17 years of RPG mm. work. Uh, I, I, I am at the place of peace knowing that no matter what we do, we will still get questions, even 50 years from now, of how do I attack the darkness? Can I cast, can I cast Fireball when I can't see? There are certain questions that are sort of perennial, yeah, and, no, mm. and no matter how clearly the rules are written, uh, no matter how simple the game is, because of the conversational nature of D&D, because of how different 
also just bonkers questions. Yeah, so it's fun to read sometimes in the rules when you read something and then there's another line saying, even in this circumstance, and another line saying, no, really, and it means this. And you think, well, I got it the first time around, but it, yeah, I understand that as at some point in the development process, people were asking these questions, so you've had to put the rule. No, really, you can't do it under this circumstance. Even on zero hit points, this still applies, because those questions have come up, so you're just making it super clear for everybody. Does this all go into your secret folder marked 6E on your computer? So when you get like a really good question, you think that's a good answer. I'll use that. I think you said as soon as I'm able. So that's your secret six. <laughs> <laughs> so no secret that Fortnite uh, I was I was thinking about uh, you know, a future version of the game before the current version was even finished. Wow. <laughs> and, and that is honestly the nature of our work. Uh, we are we are constantly working on the game that is in front of us, but also building a foundation for the future because we want D and D. You know, you know, it's it, it's been around for over forty years, and I would love for it to be around for you know, a, you know, another forty and another forty after that. And so we always need to be thinking, uh, you know, not resting on our laurels. How can we make the D and D of tomorrow and the D&D uh, five years from now and the D&D of ten years from now uh, sing even better than the game currently sings. And without forgetting the important lesson that we internalized in the D&D next playtest process, and that is making sure however the game evolves, that it still is channeling the old spirit that people have loved in D&D going all the way back to first edition. Uh, you know, one of our goals in the D&D Next Playtest process was if someone hasn't played D&D since 1st or 2nd edition, even though a bunch of the rules in the sort of nitty-gritty have certainly changed in the intervening years, we want them to be able to pick up 5th edition and feel like the spirit is the same, that even though some of the details are different, they're still playing the game that they were playing uh, back in the 70s and the 80s. And, hmm. and I hope that going forward, you know, whatever new interesting territory that we explore, you can that people will still always be able to sort of see the trail going back uh, to you know the D and D of old, uh, and that's not only I'm not only saying that about you know hypothetical things we might do years from now, uh, but even the things we release uh, say in Unearthed Arcana uh, in in some of our recent Unearthed Arcana. Articles we've been exploring some uh, subclass options that uh, are a bit more off the wall than we sometimes do, and that's really an example of us exploring the aesthetic space that D&D occupies. But again, always wanting there to be some through line, no matter how oddball something might get, leading back to the classics, uh, so that people feel like wherever they go in the D&D world. Whatever edition they're playing, it's still dandy. It's still this this giant, crazy world of story, uh, you know, with different gods and different planets and different planes of existence that can all strangely coexist. <laughs> Do you think that people coming new to the game now get the same sort of experience that perhaps we did in say the seventies or eighties or or that kind of thing? I mean, that's hard to quantify, but. A couple of weeks ago, I ran some game, a game for some complete noobs, 
And that was right down to the bit where I realised they hadn't got pencils because they didn't realise that was the thing you needed for the game. And others, you know, it's like really absolutely no idea about the game kind of thing. Um, but they seemed to have a great time just in like three dungeon rooms with a couple of goblins and a bugbear. And that was like, it seemed magical to them. Do you think um, you've managed to capture with Fifth and, and some of everything that's going on that people coming to it new now get that experience that we had as kids? Do you, I don't know how you quantify it, but do you get that, that sort of feeling to it at least? My, my sense is that yes. Uh, I've got to wis- witness that firsthand DMing for some children, uh, including my niece. Uh, she is a DMing fan. And the sense of wonder that I see on their faces reminds me of how I felt when I started playing DMing. Back when I think I was about six years old, six or seven, when I first played DMing. And it's also a wonderful reminder for those of us who've been playing this game for decades that for a new player, just walking down a dungeon corridor and throwing open the door and beating a handful of goblins is thrilling. Like for many of us, we're like, oh, come on, we've seen it a thousand times. But to them, it's just, it's magic. <laughs> yeah. Well, like half the party, we ran away in the second encounter. I'm like, that's not how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to help your friends. They're like, no, this looks dangerous. There's lots of them. I was <laughs> like, you know. There was a real moment when I thought that this night's going to end quite early. With two people back in the pub and two dead in a dungeon floor, but fortunately they managed to like you know gird the loins and pull through. But there's real touching go moment. I think I think that's really it's a magic of the game and role playing in general that people who certainly for these new people I play with hadn't done any kind of role playing within a couple of hours were really considering their options. They kind of think they were in that moment thinking if I was down that dungeon, what would I do? And for half of them, it was I would run away. I wouldn't have anything else to do with this fight, you know. So it's it's good that it captures that feeling in people still. And, and the feeling that their choices really matter. I, I think I think as much as people are enchanted by the fantasy of the game, uh, the storytelling, the collaboration, also the sense of power, because you know you just play mighty warriors and wizards and clerics and, and others. But Indy is also one of the few entertainments where you can consistently make choices that have concrete outcomes. Uh, where you can you can see sort of the consequence change from we decided to do this and it resulted in that and sometimes what it results in is wonderful you know hordes of treasure glory saving the world but it can also be abject miserable defeat <laughs> and even even that defeat I think for many people on some level is satisfying because when you can look back at it and it's like we made that defeat <laughs> it's like you can. Mm-hmm. school club at the moment I'm running for well I played this afternoon and I had 12 players so that's old school for a start and uh, (laughs) they were at 9 and 10 years old and um, the the unique selling points about role playing games not just D&D all role playing games do this they still exist they are still unique even in the advent of computer gaming with incredible levels of technology you've just got that idea of you're talking to a person and you don't need a board and the game continues from week to week and you will grow and become you know more developed as a character and the story is being made up right now and it's cooperative all of those things they just don't happen in other games so these kids of mine that are nine ten years old their eyes are absolutely wide about learning things that we've now got ingrained into us like never split the party they don't know that that's a good idea 
they don't know it yet so they keep trying to split up and then it all goes horribly wrong and they go, they're learning not just about role playing games but about like you know the, the hidden rules <laughs> about, <laughs> about metagaming <laughs> that we all know they love it they absolutely love it so I, I don't think anything's changed really it's still D4s at the end of the day isn't it you know it's still funny shaped dice and um, and tell me what you do yeah no I, I agree I think the soul of the game is the same uh, yeah. Uh, yeah and and again that is that is one of our goals is to still take the game in new directions but keep that 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 glorious soul alive hmm so, so one of the things that has changed with the advent of technologies, stream games and things like that, and then you have events like uh, you guys had where, when you were promoting the Vermis, and there was a whole weekend that was live streamed, and people like yourself, who perhaps in the good old days got to sit in your shed and make your games come in away, you know, quite happily, you're now sort of thrust in front of a camera with thousands of people watching. What's that like as an experience, and how is it um, from a design team's point of view, to have to like, well, not have to, but get to sit in front of people and get asked questions from a live audience and, you know, being watched around the world as well. So I love the fact that people can now watch other people play d and because it means one of the big barriers to entry to the game has been knocked over. And that barrier in the past was sometimes just finding an indie game that you could watch. I have talked over the years to many people who maybe as a kid saw a D&D book but never saw anyone playing the game. And so they weren't quite sure what the game was like when you actually played it. You know, they might, they might have been fascinated by the art in those old books. They might have imagined what a D&D game was like, but it was always mysterious. And so with streaming, you can just, you know, pop onto your computer or your phone and see, oh, People of all sorts play this game. Maybe I can do it too. So I think streaming has been a tremendous gift to the DD community. And I love now participating in it by DMing at events like, uh, like at the Descent. Because in a way, not only is it fun just, you know, to make people laugh and sort of sh- share, uh, our love for DD with a room full of people, but honestly, for me, it's also another form of research because it's always important to me that D&D retain its amazing flexibility. D&D is amazingly flexible when it comes to subgenres and fantasy. It's also flexible when it comes to play style because you can play theater of the mind, you can, you know, you can break up the miniatures in a grid and be highly tactical. Well, streaming has now added another form of D&D and that's essentially performed D&D. And so, as the lead rules designer, I like doing that kind of DMing to make sure I understand from the inside what is it like to DM our game uh, for that kind of uh, viewership. And then, mm-hmm. and then I just sort of add that to my thinking. You know, any any evolution that we do of the game now needs to account for that style of play, uh, yeah, along yeah, with sure. traditional you know, around the dinner table kind of play or, you know, break out all the miniatures kind of play. You'll have to see the DM screen get lower and lower. (laughs) (laughs) Even more important. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it gives us all an excuse to try out a new T-shirt as well, right? (laughs) (laughs) Excellent stuff. 
So is there anything you can, um, I obviously can't give away too many details about other future projects, but are, are there any kind of like teasing details you can give us about direction you might be taking or upcoming things or what might be on your mind? Uh, the big thing, one of the big things on my mind has been uh, material uh, people have been seeing in Unearthed Arcana. And I, as always, love reading people's responses to it. Uh, and so it's been a lot of fun to cook up this series of Unearthed Arcana goodies that people have been seeing. Uh, and we have some more goodies on the way that I'm excited uh, to see people's response to. And as has often been the case in the past, uh, that sort of material, if it gets uh, positive enough feedback, uh, is likely to end up in a book at some point. Uh, and so in some ways, people can sort of look at Unearthed Arcana as, a, as an ongoing glimpse into a potential future. Uh, I, honestly, I here, uh, here on the team, we also get uh, a lot of amusement at seeing people's guesses at what it's all uh, building <laughs> toward. Uh, and and the, a few times people actually are, are right, uh, and often uh, not at all. We love seeing people's enthusiasm. We love seeing what people are dreaming about. Uh, for the game, because often when people speculate about what's coming, it's really their way of saying, this is what they're dreaming And the thing is, is we're D&D fans too, and so many of the things that people dream about and are excited about, we dream about the same things. And, you know, we, we can't always give everything at once, given our production timelines, you know, also maintaining the health of game, uh, but there is a good chance that if a person is you know, dreaming that you know X will make it into D&D, there's a good chance that we are tinkering on X, uh, and you know, I, I can't say you know when it might come out, whatever it is the person is dreaming about, but there's a good chance in some form uh, it will make an appearance in the future. Cool. Well, one of the things we always ask a guest, and I mean, your uh, enthusiasm shone all the way through this. Like, you're really super excited about all the D&D stuff. But I was wondering, <laughs> are there any of the games that you play, or perhaps movies or books or inspirations? Is there anything else that you're kind of, like, doing in the background for your own fun when you're not doing D&D, or, or are you just constantly D&D all the time? So, uh, in my free time, I do also do D&D. I have a home campaign uh, that I run, uh, not only because I love it, uh, but it's also a way for me to just experience the game uh, the way everyone else does. You know, sitting around with a group of friends and uh, eating you know too much food that's bad for us and, and having a lot of bad jokes. Um, but I also play a ton of other games. Uh, I, for years, have been a fan of other RPGs, of board games, of miniature games. Like I play Warhammer. Uh, I play video game RPGs. Uh, I particularly enjoy a lot of Japanese RPGs. That's been true for, for many years. Uh, I am also uh, an ancient history buff, especially uh, ancient history as it pertains to different spiritual traditions in the world. Uh, you guys uh, may or may not know that my master's degree is actually in theology, uh, and so I will even occasionally, for fun, uh, translate ancient Greek uh, and and that that sort of historical exploration that I that I 
actually uh, inspire some things that we work on uh, in D&D. Uh, I, I mean, in fact, in this very room where we're recording uh, this interview, I was in a meeting not too long ago where uh, members of the staff asked me to come in and hold forth about, uh, and how can I put this without giving anything away, to hold forth about uh, a particular culture's uh, myths uh, in in our world. Uh, that's the whole I can say. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think lots of old school role players realise that plundering history is like one of the richest scenes of role playing ideas you can you can come across. I mean, it's not especially not just Western culture. If you go to you know India or China or any of this kind of Asian countries, there's there's old manner of stuff that's uh, virtually untapped in the role playing world. Yeah, our our world uh, is filled with so many storytelling riches. Uh, and to me, it is sort of the, the richest mine uh, to go in. Uh, and, you know, there are particular areas where uh, I have expertise, and then when we want to venture into an area of history or myth where I don't have expertise or, or other people on staff don't have expertise, it's then fun to go out and find somebody who does have that expertise. Uh, and then, so then it's an excuse to get to talk about new things from our own world's history, uh, and then also. Absolutely, I'm just slightly fascinated, Jeremy, when you say that you're running a home game of D and D. It just struck me that how come? Well, if you reach a situation where you're not sure what the rule is, who do you call? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I have sometimes been asked, uh, you know, what what is it like for my players? Sure. <laughs> you don't want to get anything wrong, do you? <laughs> well, and the, the thing is, is we do not discuss rules in my own game. Uh, it, oh, is, oh, right. it is a heavily story-focused, almost always theater of the mind game. Uh, and this particular mm-hmm. campaign was a gothic horror campaign where one of one of the goals I set for myself when I started this campaign each session I wanted to introduce some bit of horror that was grosser than anything I had done up to that point. Uh, and I am I am glad that the campaign is coming to an end soon, even though I've loved running it because I've, I've reached sort of pinnacle gross. <laughs> <laughs> and so my next campaign I think will be a little brighter. <laughs> uh, but we, we tend not to, to talk about rules a, because there are several people at, at the table who work on the game. Uh, James Wyatt has actually been one of my players for over a decade now. Uh, Chris Perkins is also one of my players. And honestly, one of the last things we want to do on our time off is talk about how the game works. Yeah. Uh, we just want to yeah. play. Strictly pleasure, no business. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, but also another reason is uh, I... I, as the lead rules designer, know, uh, you know, deep in my bones that we really mean it when we say that the number one rule is that the DM decides what works best for the group in service to their fun. You know, I really view myself as sort of a servant to my group's fun, which then gives me a lot of delight. And so with that understanding deep in my bones, there's really no place for us to quibble about rules. Uh, because my players know that occasionally I might make, you know, a temporary call just to keep the story moving, and 
absolutely. I think it's one of the key things about DMing is that you, you make a rule at the time and you can discuss it afterwards if you want to, but let's have a good session and then, you know, the post-mortem after is, is often just as good fun, but like make sure it is afterwards and not during the game itself. So um, one final thing I kind of want to ask you, because I'm, I'm conscious we're taking up your time now and we're getting to the mark, but um, uh, one of the sort of features of other games at the minute, or certainly the indie games or self-published or what you want to call them, is kind of making players as responsible for the fun of the table as the DM. Now, I think traditionally D&D and certainly some of the more traditional games have that kind of, it's almost the DM's responsibility to make the fun. And I was wondering if there's anything you have in mind around, I know you've mentioned previously, encouraging players to help other players out, but what do you think about that kind of feature of the seven people around a table or how many you've got, but that the DM's just another player with a slightly different role to everybody else, and it's really up to everybody to make sure that game's fun. Right? Is that an ethos that you're trying to help through your design? Absolutely. Um, and honestly, that is how I have always run going back you know, to the early 80s. Uh, I, think, I think I first started DMing in the early 80s, started playing in the late 70s. And I've always viewed D&D as this, this, this collaborative experience. And even sometimes uh, when I DM at conventions for you know, a group of players I usually don't know I'm going to be their DM. Uh, often when I'm at conventions, uh, you know, I might have my like, scheduled events, but then I often like to be the surprise DM for people playing D&D in an open area. And when I have those people as my players, uh, one of the things I'll often tell them is like, hey, if you're playing a spellcaster, please make sure that when you cast a spell, you have your book open to the spell's description, because I will rely on you to tell me what your spell does. And I honestly let players uh, essentially DM how their character functions. I don't view it as my job as the DM to tell them how their character works. Uh, I basically DM the world in response to their character. And I, I even uh, let players get things wrong. I do it I do it actually in the Acquisitions Incorporated game that I have DM. Uh, occasionally, players will say their class feature or their spell does something and I know because either you know it's something I've worked on or even wrote I'm like it doesn't actually do that <laughs> I, I will often not say anything because as DM I can just whatever whatever they, reality they toss in my direction I just sort of catch the ball and then serve it back uh, and so I, I really love empowering players to sort of run their character and also drive the pace. I will always, I will always have something in my back pocket to, you know, if I if I need to introduce something to keep things moving, like if if it feels like, you know, the action has started to slow down a little bit, you know, I have something I can I can you know I can cause an NPC to suddenly appear, or you know, a strange magical storm suddenly erupts. But I, whenever possible, like to let players steer even the pacing of the game so that they feel like their characters are really making a difference and it's not just me sort of you know i essentially wrote a fantasy novel and now you get to watch me recite you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're the worst games <laughs> part of it is i also love being surprised by my players so one of the reasons i dm is to be amused by them uh, i think i think too often we we do portray the DM as the person that's sort of all of the, the, the fun labor on their shoulders, but I actually think the players, the best players, 
brilliant. So if we could just ask you for one tip, if you've got one of the things we always try to do is encourage more and better games and get more people DMing. So if you've got like one tip for people who are thinking about maybe taking the leap and running the game for friends or DMing for the first time, have you got like a, something just to pet people up and think this is this is me as one of the entire team of D and D telling you you can do it? What what would you say to someone? So I would say the thing is if you're gonna DM maybe for the first time or you're DMing for a group of people who've never played before, don't feel like you need to teach your group all of the rules. What I have found when I DM for people who've never played before, all I really need to explain to them is when it's your time for your character to act, no matter what kind of scene it's in, simply describe to me what you want to do, and I will tell you what rules to use. I think a lot of people get hung up on, oh no, this new player needs to know how all the rules function before they can all they need to know is what the different dice are, and they just need to know how to describe what they want their character to do, and the DM and the other players, especially if the other players are experienced, can then help that person figure out how to match their intent uh, with, how the, with how the game works. Uh, because the, that's the other bit I would say, is not only to the new DM, but the new player, is never forget it's a cooperative game. You can always lean on the other It's been uh, great to have you on. Thanks very much for your time. And um, I'm sure we'll get no end of questions, which I'll, I'll direct people to you because you're the expert rather than just try to answer your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, really appreciate it. All right, bye-bye. <laughs> Cheers, Jeremy.